My mom brought over like coffee she was given yesterday, but she doesn't drink non, she doesn't drink caffeinated coffee. She can only drink decaf. Uh, and it, knowing what you know about my mom, like she would be on the roof if she had yes. any like extreme caffeine. And it's coconut infused coffee. Huh. And I can't figure out if I like it. Yeah, I don't like, think I, don't, I would vibe with that. Yeah. I didn't love it black, like when it was just like this extra hint of coconut. But then I used my pumpkin creamer. So now it's like coconut, pumpkin, pumpkin coconut? cinnamon. And I don't know. I mean, it's coffee. Like, I'm happy to have coffee. I'm going to finish the coffee, but. I just associate coconut flavored beverages with like pina coladas. Like I, I need to. It's it usually has alcohol, and it's I'm usually at a beach, so that I that associating with coffee just like doesn't click at all. In my brain, it worked better than my peppermint creamer. Those are my only two options in my fridge. Where I was like, yeah. if you put coconut on a pumpkin pie, like it kind of works. Like I could see that working. Mm-hmm. Like a coconut milk in a yeah, I could yeah you made the right choice. Peppermint no. Mm-mm. Yeah, peppermint and coconut coffee didn't sound great but i just need like a normal vanilla creamer <laughs> to try it next time you just need so much coffee all the time especially when we're trying to wrap up an entire season of the circus of the sport oh my goodness going through all the prep work we did for all three of our season review episodes there were so many things that i forgot happened and even like major things like i forgot that imola was canceled at some mm-hmm. point. And then I was reminded of that. I thought it was last season that Otmar was fired from Alpine. But no, no, no. That was actually this season. Too much happened. Too much to wrap up. Which is why we're doing three season review episodes. So in case you missed it, our first season review episode was everything driver standing. So we talked teammate battles. We talked Oscar Piastri's fantastic rookie season and so much more. This episode, we're going to talk everything team performance. So it is hard. Cars are different every single weekend. So we're going to break things down in the most digestible way possible to try to determine what surprised us the most, what teams not named Red Bull outperformed their car, and who was actually the worst car on the grid. We're gonna discuss all of this in this episode. And then depending on when you're listening to this, either next week or already live, there is a third season review episode where we're gonna talk everything about the popularity, business, and pop culture of F1. Basically everything surrounding the circus on track. The circus surrounding the circus is what's going to be our third episode. Also during all of this, make sure you head over to our social media channels and our YouTube shorts. We're doing 23 days of, we're doing 23 podiums over 23 days, wrapping up the 2023 Formula One season. Yep, we did all those 2020, we did all those 23s because it would be fun, but now it's just a mouthful that I struggle to say every time I have to say it on the podcast. But we're giving you our podiums for our favorite things like liveries, helmets, pop culture moments, shockers, race weekends, etc. So there's so much season wrap up and review going on. That wraps up the Formation Lab for episode 48 of Gridwalk, a weekly Formula One podcast that believes there are fascinating fascinating stories to discuss across the entire F1 grid. And it is a weekly podcast, even in the off season. So stick around. You're going to get episodes every single week. 
Don't forget to like and subscribe if you're watching us on YouTube. Please leave us a comment down below with both. Tell me what car impressed you the most over the course of the season. And also, because it's ambiguous, what car was the slowest overall? see if you agree with our assessment. If you're listening on any audio platform, please hit the follow button, turn on auto downloads, and leave us a review. We ask for all of this stuff. Every podcast you probably listen to asks for all of this stuff, and that's because it really helps push our show out through the algorithm and find other listeners just like you. So if you do one or all of these things, we greatly appreciate it. Cool down our wind up on the grid. It's lights out, and away we go this week's Grid Walk. Well, we can't have a wrap-up review show about teams without talking about Red Bull absolutely dominating the season. Oh, shocker. shocker. Whoa. Ah, to no one. Wow. No. Did you know? Did you know? Who, who right. would have guessed? Isn't it such a surprise? Said no one ever. Yeah, I think that's why originally on our original outline for the show, some behind the scenes, we didn't even have this on there. And I went and finished the rest of the outline. And I was like, it feels weird to do this entire episode without like stopping at the beginning and acknowledging this was probably the most dominant car ever in Formula One. Not only was it dominant, but it was perfectly built for this regulation set where you can actually pass better. So they emphasize great race pace and we're fine by the end of the season when Ferrari caught up in qualifying. It didn't matter. It also, this is a team that ran on all cylinders. Their pit stops were still perfect. Like, I mean, that's not new for Red Bull. Almost every strategy decision they made, it, like, they had the leeway to make bad strategy decisions and just make up for it on pace. But I don't, I couldn't find a single time all season that they messed up. And on top of that, they had some of the most incredible reliability we've ever seen. I just, it was a team and a car that was magic. Like, yeah. they couldn't have DNF'd once to create some excitement for us. Nope. Yeah, uh, it, it it's really baffling. And again, we knew that they were going to be dominant. The part that I think every week we were continuing to say is like, we don't even know like what the full potential is because like they don't have to. And like to the point of, making you know they could go crazy with strategy decisions and they just like didn't have to they didn't have to make any kind of silly mistakes because everything just worked it was like great cool okay like okay yeah we know singapore happened but it's like a blip in the radar a blip in the probability of such and things it i'm i'm surprised by as dominant as as it was it it was crazy going into every week. I mean, we didn't predict P1 for a reason. <laughs> and there were 22 races. Should have been 23. But 22... Well, actually, should have been 24. But there were 22 races. So this wasn't like F1 years past where they needed to be on top of it and perfect for 15 races. They need 22 race weekends, six sprint races. There was so much more racing than any prior year. And it was, it was incredible perfection to see, please don't do it again next year. I'm going to cry. I'm going to be so bored. If the car was that dominant, but like, imagine if they just like the Honda engine exploded every once in a while, like, you know, just, just a little bit of excitement. Go back to the beginning of 2022 for like a little bit. You needed, we needed like that little bit of a window of just like (gasps) Charles and this and Ferrari or Aston Martin and like those types of things. Cause it's just like a fun, exciting thing. No, it never happened. 
never happened. There was always, even when there was a major grid penalty or something, the conversation was just, all right, so how many laps until Max is at the front of the race? It was not like stinks, tough, like really puts an end to their race weekend. The conversation is, all right, how many laps has it taken to jump 12 spots? It's crazy. You and I were doing like on the side bets, like, you know, over under 12 laps. And then, then it would be like eight laps and we'd both be like, uh, hmm. Yeah. We were off even with our extremely crazy estimate for him to get from basically the back of the grid to the front. Yeah, it was it was very impressive. Congratulations, Red Bull. Can we go talk about more interesting things now? Yes. Way to go. Do the thing. Yay, congratulations. Good job. We'll, right now we'll check on still here. We'll see if that will remain. I really I was on a roll and then I like wasn't. <laughs> and it just all flew out the door. You gave me a compliment, but I was like, my brain needs to go back oh, to not no. <laughs> Same disclaimer as all the team data. It would be incredibly hard to pull very intricate race pace data. I have a full-time job outside of this podcast, but you know what I can pull? I can pull quality data. So we even said in our congratulations to Red Bull that we know Red Bull kind of slipped in qualifying performance towards the end of the season, but they really didn't upgrade their car in sense like maybe race six. I don't remember the exact race that they last upgraded their car. But looking at quality pace gives us at least a easy snapshot into team performance. So we're going to look at all the teams, how they ranked race by race in quality pace. We've split the data into three sections of the season. So the first section is the beginning of the season that I'm calling pre-Spain. So it's the first six races of the season that takes you from Bahrain to, there we go, Bahrain to Monaco. Um, Then what I'm calling upgrade season. So it's when the bulk of the upgrades were coming, um, they were coming the most frequently. Of course, some teams upgraded before this, some teams upgraded after this. And it was the six races between the Spanish GP and the Dutch GP. Then you have the what I'm calling the final seven, but it's really the final eight races of the season of Singapore to Abu Dhabi. But Singapore was such an anomaly that for any of the averages I did, I pulled Singapore out of it because we all know that Red Bull was the fastest team of the season. And if you put that P8 ranking in from Singapore, they become a midfield car, right? So it's just removed from the averages. You have the final seven of the season and we can all just reflect nostalgically about the one outlier that was Singapore. It's the asterisk on the data. So we're going to go through the three stages of the season, talk about the winners and losers of those stages, and then wrap things up with an overview for each team of how do we summarize their performance collectively for the season. All of them can be summarized under not Red Bull, but we're going to look a little deeper than that. It's the tears underneath. Oh, remember at the start of the season when like Aston Martin was like the greatest thing since sliced bread? Yeah, it basically just seemed it was like, oh my God, it's like a green Red Bull. Oh, blah. It's, yeah, it seemed like we were going to be talking a lot about Aston Martin all season and uh, didn't pan out exactly as I was expecting in these first seven races. Yeah, yeah. 
Aston was one of the teams, upon re-looking back at all of this data, that I was shocked at how not as crazy their performance was, is kind of how I would put it. Um, so quick disclaimer, if you're listening on audio, we are going to verbally talk about everything, but there are visual examples. If you head over to our YouTube channel, there's some graphs and stuff we're going to pull up that we're looking at and we're talking about. So my clear winners of pre-Spain, not Red Bull included, are Aston Ferrari and Alpine, actually, for this section. It stunned me how much better Ferrari was at the beginning of the season in qualifying trim than I had remembered. And I blame Ferrari for this because Ferrari came into the season. And do you remember in their car launch, they were talking all about how much they're going to compete with Red Bull this season and how they think they're going to win races. And despite the fact that they definitely averaged their average over in the pre-Spain part of the season, they averaged this 2.3, which means the second fastest team on the grid. But my memory of the coverage of this was, oh, it was definitely Aston Martin. No, Aston Martin was the third fastest team on average in the beginning in qualifying trim. But we only judge Ferrari based on whether or not they could compete with Red Bull. But Aston Martin, Fernando was just like dancing and doing a bunch of like, woo, yay stuff. And we were like, blinded by the fact that Aston Martin jumped up so high. Yeah, I think, and we had conversations about how, you know, Ferrari is able to some, like figure things out on Saturdays and then like Sundays, things just don't pan out and you can really start to see this here. But that is such a surprise to me to see it visually because I do reflect on that time and it's all about Aston Martin and this, and maybe it's because you know, everyone was so jazzed to see Alonzo returning to podium conversations that it just overshadows any sort of like Ferrari success in any type of way. So it's, it's hard to believe that this is a factual thing that we lived through because it just didn't seem like that's where Ferrari ever panned out to really be. Yeah. And I think that we're always going to be more inclined to judge things based on what happens on Sunday. So Ferrari was sliding back. Fernando was the man ending up on the podium. So I don't think the assessment was incorrect at the time. But just upon reflection, um, Aston Martin was the third fastest team for four of the races. They were the second fastest team in Monaco, and they were the fourth fastest team in Baku. So that averages out to being the third fastest team over the course of this. So it just, it shocked me. And then Ferrari got pole at Baku. They were the second fastest team for three of the races. They were the fourth fastest team in Australia. I remember how painful that race was. And they were the third fastest team in Monaco. And I think just, we judge Ferrari on this other scale. And as soon as Aston was elevated to that scale, I think as soon as Aston really blundered in Monaco and was unable to win that race for Fernando, uh, because of the poor pit stops, we all started to judge them in a similar way we judge Ferrari and Mercedes, which we'll talk about in a moment, that uh, put them on a different scale. But these first six races were fun to pretend. No, it yeah, it's, it's to your point, we always, Ferrari is always like an exception, not exception to the rule, but there's always an additional lens just because it is Ferrari and the expectation. I think 
Aston coming in this season, it was like this murmurings of like, oh, there's going to be something that's going to be good, but no one expected it to be exactly what it was. And then it felt like we were starting to get used to seeing like they're going to be the ones to compete. They're really going to be the ones to be next to Red Bull. And then Monaco, it just didn't happen. And then it kind of like popped the bubble. It burst the bubble of everyone's kind of like, oh, okay. So you know, the rose colored glasses come off. Everything isn't as it necessarily seems. And is as magical as we all hoped for, um, which, you know, continues on. So I think we should talk about Mercedes here because Mercedes and McLaren were my teams with bad vibes at the beginning of the season, but for different reasons in different places. So let's start with Mercedes. So in this time period, Mercedes averaged out to 4.2. So they were the fourth fastest car on the grid on average over these first six races of the season. They had their peak in Australia where they were the second fastest team and they had their worst race in Miami where they were the seventh fastest team. But then everything else was four, four, three, five. So averaging out to fourth fastest team overall. And I think this goes to the conversation that we were just having about Aston Martin where and about Ferrari. Where Mercedes, if they're not competing with Red Bull, we're just upset. <laughs> we're just upset. So it doesn't matter that they were the second fastest team in Australia. They didn't compete with Red Bull. I remember that race being very frustrating. Yeah, it was. Uh, I was frustrated in P2. I was devastated. I was uh, frustrated with the like second fastest pace in Australia. And then I was devastated with the seventh, what, fourth? In Where Miami. are we numbers? Oh, my God, Miami. Yeah. I... I yeah, it, it's a different level of pain, but it is all still just you're not competing with Red Bull. So like, what's the point? We're just gonna be sad about it. <laughs> I think that Mercedes had the most uh, all over the place in their. They had the least consistent performance of the ones that we've talked about right now in the early stage of this stages of the season, you know, because they were four, four, two, three, seven, five. They were they felt so all over the place in the early stages of the season. And there was all the talk about Aston Martin jumping them that the the vibes were bad. There was no other way to say it than the vibes were bad. And they were the fourth fastest team on average. And it felt like they were the fourth fastest team on average at this stage. Yeah, it all, and it felt like an epic letdown because I remember with the preseason launches and the W14 and it's black and blah, blah, and when it didn't come out blazing down just every straight, every turn, it, it was like, oh no, are we really going to be in for another thing? And then it's like, well, you know, there's not really any purposing and it's like, okay, but at, at what cost? Like, is everything really better? <laughs> no, <laughs> it's everything's fine and the world's on fire. <laughs> Uh, There are two teams in this phase that I want to point out where you can see the beginning of a positive trend for them in what could be positive uh, for those teams. So one of them is Alpine. In this phase, Alpine averaged at 5.3, so they were the fifth fastest team on the grid. Um, But their their trend goes sixth, fifth, sixth, seventh, but then they get two fourth fastest teams when Mercedes had down weekends in Miami and Monaco. So you start seeing this positive trend as the besties on the podium in Monaco, baby. And like you, you see that you feel that things maybe aren't, aren't doom and gloom, even though they, they didn't start out great. They got kind of muddled and things start to get a little better. 
Similarly, Williams had a very positive trajectory for them, and you see uh, the beginnings of what's going to be a very positive upgrade season for them, where they started out 10th and 10th, and then went 7th, 8th, 8th, 8th. And they averaged out to 8.5, which was the slowest in this phase. But looking at the trend line here, you see, you see where things are coming and where they're going. And they end the pre-Spain phase of the season definitely not as the slowest team. Yes, they ended not the slowest. It's really funny seeing this now because just reflecting back on Monaco and remembering just celebrating Essie Bestie on the podium and also Alex Albon's performance that weekend felt like such a magical thing to be happening. So it's funny to be now kind of seeing like this trend up as it's going with you know off weekends for other teams and kind of seeing where it could go. I remember feeling so incredibly hopeful for Alpine <laughs> at this point in time. And it was like, well, you know what? Things aren't so great for Mercedes, but like Alpine's really making strides. Mm -hmm. Little did we know, but yeah, I think overall the, I feel like F1 does a great job establishing the storylines early in the season. It doesn't do a great job adjusting those storylines when something happens. But upon reflection, like, Aston Martin wasn't quite as fast as I remembered. Ferrari was faster than I remembered. Mercedes was just as painful as I remembered. Are we going to talk about McLaren here? Oh, uh, yeah, I for totally forgot about McLaren. Uh, McLaren had obviously a very bad start to the season. They averaged at 7.3. But what was shocking to me is how not how it was inconsistent and not as dreadful as I remembered, because early on they were DNFing in so many races that their points were actually worse than their pace. The reality is they were like the seventh fastest team on average. And the media coverage made it seem like they were the slowest because they had zero points for so long. <laughs> like they weren't finishing any races. But their trend was seven, six, nine, five, ten, seven. So with the, if you pull out the nine and ten finishes, and if you told me at the beginning of the season their pace was seven, six, five, seven, like I really wouldn't be that worried about them. I'd be like, yeah, I mean, like they didn't bring a great car to start, but if you're telling me they're finishing behind all the works teams and then this miraculous Aston jump, that would feel right to me. And that's kind of where they are. Like, were the vibes really bad? Yes. Was that car as dreadful as everyone was pretending it was? No, it was not the Williams that we remembered from last year. It's not the Haas. But it, definitely bad vibes. Yeah, definitely not ideal, but it was not as devastating, I guess, as I remember it feeling emotionally just like watching it. But Sundays were hard. Saturday's not as rough. And I guess things just got a lot better for Papaya. There were three teams on the grid who had lower averages in the pre-Spain part of the season in qualifying position. And that was AlphaTauri, Alfa Romeo, and Williams were all slower on average in qualifying than McLaren over this time period. Now, again, them being on par with Haas for their average is not where McLaren should strive to be. Like, I'm not trying to sit here and convince you that they had a good start to the season. It's just, I'm just trying to show that the data isn't as dramatic as the emotion behind Everything is not as bad as it feels. Right. And I think that's important context going to upgrade season. It's 
the, the jump is impressive and none of this data makes it less impressive, but they weren't going from P10 to P2. The P7 to P2, which is kind of where it ends up being, um, is a much more reasonable jump considering how compacted this field is than slowest car on the field to the ones competing with Red Bull, which is what some of the media coverage made this seem like. <laughs> Upgrade season! Where more Mercedes hopes go to die! Yay! Boo! But, you know, <laughs> hopefulness. No, I mean, they, they got rid of those zero side pods, but it did not immediately help anything. Yeah, I called that car Frankenstein's monster all season, and it is accurate. Yep. All right, but upgrade season, Spain through the Netherlands uh, is where, you know, the bulk of the upgrades came for these cars. Should we start with bad vibes or winners, Nicole? Uh, let's start with winners, and then we'll go. We'll end on the bad vibes. Cool, because I want to talk about Williams. Williams, yeah. Williams, Williams. That's exactly um, right, what so... I see this jump, and I said, "No, we're going to start with winners here because I we got to get here." <laughs> I saw the jump of Williams on this beautiful graph, and so I was like, "Oh no, we're we're gonna we're gonna be talking uh, some Williams energy first. Yeah. Uh, so I think I should point out here that my data is all about the fastest lap put in with in qualifying, not necessarily who got pole. Canada had the weird qualifying where the fastest laps actually came in Q2 because Q3 was wet. And Alex Albon put an incredible lap in that made him the fastest lap done in Canada. But obviously he was P10 on the grid because Max got pole in Q3 on the wets. So I just think that's an important caveat. So it is a weird race and it is weird to see the Williams line and the graph we're all looking at go from P10 to P1 <laughs> back up to P8. Um, so there's the caveat there. That being said, Williams made the jump from being the 10th slowest um, average in the pre-Spain to an upgrade season. They were the sixth fastest team. They actually had a better average than Alpine over this the course of this uh, six race stretch. Now, some of that is the benefit of that P1 they get for Canada. Uh, but this is when... The court, the part of the season that things started to go really well, including that P4 at the Dutch GP. Yeah, again, it was after that magical Monaco weekend for Alex Albon that I feel like my bit of Alex Albon in the points really like started to take off. Uh, and you can see this in numerical form um, and kind of seeing in the relationship of how they're averaging out higher than Alpine just that sentence even now sounds really weird, even knowing how everything ended for Alpine. But uh, Canada was a wild back and forth weekend. It's it's funny how all that seemed like such a big deal. And it was so easy to have forgotten about it. Yeah, I think that my overall story for Williams' season is their highs were super high and they were able to capitalize when their highs were high. Um, and their lows might be low, but I think we all expect that of Williams. And more than any other back-of-the-grid team, they were able to capitalize in the points when the car was able to do so with Alex Albon, which is actually why 
I was so frustrated a couple weeks ago when we were talking about Logan Sargent returning because, you know, if the car is capable of a couple weekends a year putting in performances like Alex can, like, get another driver in that car. Like, ah! No, it's just impressive of what he can do with the car. Um, I know we've already passed Monaco, but talking about how that was like the weekend where we started to see cars flying and the floors of cars. And then, you know, eventually in this point, like in the season, I think around upgrade seasons might have been after, but when we saw the floor of the Williams and even they were like, what do we have to hide? It's just flat and nothing, you know, it's (laughs) so being able to get kind of anything with that. Absolutely. Like just wonderful. So the other story of upgrade season was of course the McLaren pace jump. So they averaged at 7.3 in pre-Spain and upgrade season. They were the second fastest team averaging at 2.8. Uh, Their story on the graph here is third fastest team, third fastest team, third fastest team, second, fourth, second. So they had a really strong upgrade season. I don't think there's much more that we need to say about it than hasn't already been said throughout it. Uh, I will always point out the fact that Ferrari and Mercedes should be, there was always a Ferrari and Mercedes size gap between Red Bull and whoever was P2 this season. You know, whether that was Aston Martin or turned into McLaren, like you could see the gap of the other teams that should be performing at Red Bull's level. Um, But that doesn't mean that it's not impressive that McLaren could get a mid-season upgrade this right. Yeah, if anything, I feel more impressed about how at the start of the season, Zach Brown and everyone at McLaren was like, we just feel really good about our upgrades, which like automatically everyone's like, that feels not good that you're just in this space of the car that we have right now. We just like, don't really vibe with and whatever. And then for it to work and like, be like, Oh wow, you said things and it worked out and it reflects your quotes and things. Um, so that I, again, very surprised of any sort of jump like that. Very impressive. But yeah, the gap to Red Bull was just so huge that it still just wasn't enough. Bad vibes. So Aston Martin over the course of upgrade season and earlier than I remember happening, they dropped from their pre-Spain average being three to their upgrade season average being 5.2. Um, and their positions were six, four, five, six, five, five mm. over the course of the season. So I didn't realize how early on their pace dropped off. It was quick. And I still think them ending the season where they ended and even them being the fifth fastest team, considering they were slow, the slowest for a lot of last year is still really impressive, but you immediately see the drop of they were not able to upgrade that car. Yeah. Wow. It also very much, it feels like it was not as long ago as it was. I, again, I think we were so infected by like the narrative of Aston Martin is going to be the ones and to compete with Red Bull and things that it just felt so much longer than it actually was. When now my brain is like beeping out and I can't, when was the technical directive in place? Like how, like, was that, that seems like it was really recent um, the technical directive was somewhere between Spain and Austria. 
I can't remember. All I know is this P6 in Spain, I don't think was because, like we hadn't seen the technical directive yet, but that doesn't mean the teams hadn't received notice that they need to change yet. Okay. Because yeah, it, it really went from Aston being the second fastest team in Monaco to the sixth fastest in Spain, like pretty dramatically fast. Uh, but we don't know exactly when the teams were told about the technical directive. Right. So they could have started to make those changes because they just knew they already had to and then like could have. But obviously more things put in play than just like the one technical directive is going right. to cause to dramatically like shatter. I also, if I remember, this is really pulling on the strings of my brain that I don't trust so much. But the technical directive mostly talked about the front wing. And we know for these regulations, the front wing is not the most crucial part of car performance. Uh, like, so if you, you being the ethereal you, are telling me that the reason Aston Martin dropped from the third fastest team to the fifth fastest team and spoil alert to like the eighth to six fastest team at the end of the season was because of a front wing. Like there's bigger issues in them not being able to develop the rest of the car. Oh yeah. Big red flag. We can see the early signs of that here since this is upgrade season. So we can see other teams bringing performance and putting performance on the car. And as Aston slips back, you're seeing other people bring performance to the car and get better. And one of those teams is Mercedes. So I think as a Mercedes fan, this upgrade season, even though it didn't feel, I think it was shaded by the dramatic change of McLaren, you can see the improved performance and the trend line of Mercedes here where they were fifth, sixth, fourth, fourth, third, third. Like they had a pretty consistent increase in their place in how fast their car was relative to others throughout upgrade season. Um, in hindsight, they were about a race behind in bringing upgrades to most cars. So they brought their first upgrade at Great Britain. They needed to understand it. And then were the third fastest team for Belgium and the Netherlands, um, particularly post-summer break, where McLaren was bringing it faster by giving it to Lando a race first. And that was improving their performance overall faster. So it always just felt like Mercedes was a step behind, but they did have a positive trajectory through this whole uh, stage of the season. Yeah. I did feel like at numerous times throughout the season when I saw McLaren doing something well, I was like, okay, so why? Hello, Mercedes. Can we fast forward to when they kind of like figured that out? And to the point of the McLaren narrative, like overshadowing M Mercedes, like progression, positive progression, hundred percent. I mean, it's easy because the Oscar Piastri story is so loud and like exciting and we are jazzed about it too. So that of course is what's going to be what commentators run on. And, you know, he's, he was the frontline rookie when, you know, other rookies of the season were definitely not being anywhere close to max in a sprint race, let alone, you know, in a quali lap, anything like that at all. So it definitely was the story that was not, Red Bull, Red Bull, Red Bull, and like opportunity of the future with the rookie and McLaren. It was checked a lot of the boxes for it to be so loud. I agree. The last main point I want to make in upgrade season is you see the disappearing act of the two alphas. Alpha Tari and Alpha Romeo really fade to the back here. 
So in pre-Spain, Alfa Romeo averaged 8.3. In this, they were the worst car at a nine. And then Alfa Tari averaged a 7.7 in the first page, and they faded to very close to the back with 8.8 .8 as their average place. Um, and you can see that in the trend here, with the exception of Spa and Alphatari having a positive result there, they really just were non-existent in this phase. And I think particularly with Alfa Romeo, that's pretty consistent with what we've seen with this car year in and year out. Their performance, if they can get some points at the beginning of the season, great. And then we just know they're going to fade to the back. Yeah, I got my only comment. Ouch. That's it. I got nothing else but ouch for the right. Alphas. For those of you watching on YouTube, I give you chaos. Yeah. The other th two graphs, there was trends you could easily identify. The end of the season was none of us are going to waste any money upgrading this car because Red Bull has already won. Let's just see what happens. And there was a good amount of, I don't know what's going on. Everyone was all over the place. It's hard to like get a good grip on things. So I think at this stage, like I'm going to give you some winners and bad vibes really quickly. And then let's go look at the average quality pace ranking for all of them to get to digest some of it. Um, Lewis Hamilton had a fantastic final stage of the season. We know this. So Mercedes had some higher highs during this time. Uh, Ferrari caught up to Red Bull in qualifying pace and AlphaTauri had some good peaks at this point. Bad vibes, Aston Martin got worse. Alpine, just guess what? If you fire everyone, it's hard to make your car better. It's kind of the general gist of Alpine here. Um, and then Red Bull did a lot of attempting to trick us into thinking things are competitive at this stage in the season by not getting pole for absolutely every final race of the season. And for that, I somewhat thank them. And we haven't talked about Haas once, but we'll get to them in like the wrap up of everything. Such chaos. Yeah, um, that, that's what the inside yeah. of my brain looks like on a Sunday. But Mercedes did improve. Like, let's narrow in on Mercedes. Um, so if you're on YouTube, you're now looking at this is the average quality place for uh all the teams over the three phases of the season we've been talking about. So Mercedes was the fourth fastest team, the fourth fastest team, and in the final stretch, they were the third fastest team. They jumped McLaren, which I actually think is underreported, that by the end of the season, Mercedes was faster than the McLaren in quali trim on average. Um, you can see Ferrari start out the second, dip behind McLaren a little bit in upgrade season, which we all felt, and then really improve. And a lot of that improvement came from what we talked about in our first season review, which is Charles, who is so great at qualifying, started putting in fantastic qualifying performances. And then you see poor Aston dip back. It feels like the seeing the McLaren jump i would never have anticipated i think if you had asked me what the vibes felt like it definitely did not feel like mercedes was in that top three and it definitely felt like in terms of pace that it was still mclaren so it's interesting to see how i use how much mclaren dropped off like loosely that feels like too much of a term 
Um, and like the growth of Mercedes definitely felt, but I, it, as watching it happen live, it didn't feel like that was enough. It didn't feel like enough of a switch that that's how it all played out. And Aston Martin, that is exactly kind of what that felt like. It felt like it was front in my face all the time. And then it was like, woo, goodbye. That's a good representation. Yeah. Uh, in the final stretch, the average qualifying place for Aston Martin was 6.4, which is the same average qualifying place as AlphaTauri. And that's also including like the magic random qualies that you know, Danny, Rick and Liam and Yuki that you were able to be getting here. No, like it just, uh. They averaged out Aston and Alphatari because they were the same, averaged out behind Alpine. And we all know how poorly a lot of this season went for Alpine in the final stretch. Uh, But we do get like four consistent tiers in the final stretch when we look at the average qualifying ranking. So Ferrari did catch up in qualifying to Red Bull. Again, in qualifying, we know what happens in the race. Then McLaren and Mercedes ended up in a tier together. And then there's a decent chunk back where you get Aston Martin, Alpine, and AlphaTauri. And it is really impressive that AlphaTauri was able to turn things around. And then we have the back tier where Williams actually ended the season as the slowest car. Um, and there, but there's right there with the Alfa Romeo and the Haas. So the end of the season, I think it's the freshest in our brain. None of that is that shocking, but you know, Aston really slid. Alpine was never to make the jump, able to make the jump they wanted to, considering they're a works team. And I think. The vibes are pretty positive for McLaren, Mercedes, and Ferrari going into the offseason. As positive as they can be. Yeah, as positive as it can be in the Red Bull dominance. It feels weird to be looking at this and it screams such positivity for Ferrari. Because it didn't necessarily feel like yeah. that. But look at that. Is Hope for Ferrari fans. That's the takeaway, everyone. I, You know what? My brain works so much better uh, earlier in the morning like this time is like my prime time of day we normally record in the evening and my brain is such mush that we're in uh, rare form yeah this is this is the best it's gonna get and i still f-ed up we've been talking through a lot of data about these three different stages of the season i thought we should do a wrap-up of one major point that each team should take away after i sifted through the qualifying performance of all of these teams starting and i did this in constructors order starting with mercedes i can't believe mercedes got p2 despite never averaging above 3.6 in any phase of this season Mercedes basically was, on average, the fourth fastest team over the course of the season and somehow got P2. That's incredible. I, wow. Full agreement. Sounds fake. Again, I'm happy about it. It doesn't feel deserving. It, I, I just, I still feel, I'm like, yay, I, yay. Mm-mm. But the math is mathing, I guess. Right, I mean... Right. Lewis Hamilton is incredible on race day. We all knew that. But like this data just shows that he is taking the fourth fastest car and somehow got 
was the fastest non-Red Bull driver or the highest scoring non-Red Bull driver of the season. Like, I don't, okay. Ferrari was able to close the gap to Red Bull more than I actually assumed in real time. Like I experienced them getting pole and winning that one race and Red Bull not seeming super unbeatable on a Saturday, but looking at the hard data, the vibes are better than I thought for Ferrari. I feel like the vibes still look okay, but then I just am stuck with the curse of a Sunday, the being able to follow through, the just reliability of Ferrari as a whole, and I don't even mean in just like a technicality speak, that even seeing the numbers, I still just, it's another place that falls like, I, yeah, okay, you're, you're, you're right there, kind of. But I don't know. It doesn't, I still feel like there's such a reliability piece here that they haven't figured out in terms of like strategy wise that I need a, I need a, a longevity of consistent strategic success with Ferrari. That sounds like an oxymoron as I'm saying it as a sentence, but I feel like I still need some more like continuous strategic success before I am fully like believing in this. Yeah, Ferrari didn't have a lot of pressure on itself for most of the season. I mean, they have the normal baseline of Ferrari pressure, but they weren't put in the championship ringer this season. So we do need to see them do it under pressure. Uh, But if you had even asked me a week ago what my takeaway for Ferrari was, it probably wouldn't be as positive as I feel about it right now, despite the fact that they won a race. They're the only other team that can say that this season and so. if they can have every race kind of be similar to Vegas in terms of like Sunday and Parker's a very big Ferrari fan who, if you hear him barking in the background, really needs to make this vocalize that he'll defend Ferrari till the end. So he gets mad when I say negative things. Um, if you have, you know, the races <laughs> like with Charles and Checo, like in Vegas, it can, it's possible it's there, but just it needs to consistently be able to do it or else what are we What's the point? Main takeaway for McLaren is they dropped back while they had this incredible rise through upgrade season. They dropped back more than I thought at the end of the season. And I'm going to be intrigued if they can start out next season, um, not on the back foot again. Yeah, that they can maintain that momentum that they had, especially since they lost it a little bit. Or is it going to be another season where they come in of... We felt really good kind of where we were headed. We still feel really good. We made some changes, not feeling too great, but don't worry. Upgrades are going to come and it'll be like another vicious cycle of it all. Right. And I will point out that next season is, I believe to be the first time the full car is going to be built in their new wind tunnel. So McLaren no longer has the excuse that their facilities are behind. So like next year is going to be the real test. And looking at this data, that's kind of how I felt. Next year will be the real test. You got to play with house money this year. I'm glad you had fun. Overall takeaway for Aston Martin is while their decline was well-documented, it really got a lot worse than I thought at the end of the season because they did have these highlights in Brazil and Qatar that I thought things were getting better and I might have overestimated how much better things were getting because, yeah, not not good, bad, real, worse than I expected. Brazil also definitely skewed my perception of how Ashton finished. Because I definitely didn't expect them to have 
slid back again as far as I did. But the power of the narrative at the start of the season just really sticks with you as it goes on. Brazil actually skewed my perception of how a lot of teams finished. You know, McLaren was the fastest car in Brazil. Then, uh, well, the fastest on Red Bull. Then Aston, then Ferrari, then Mercedes. And having to live through that as a Mercedes fan and Ferrari not having the most fantastic Saturday either, like, really skewed so much of my emotional reaction to things. (laughs) Where, like, Aston and McLaren were a lot worse than I expected when actually looking at all the hard data at the end of the season. When Mercedes and Ferrari overall were actually much better and did a good job ending their season strong. It's the emotional effect of being a Ferrari and a Mercedes fan that we just have such a negative reflection and of just like how it felt in the moment of it all, especially with Brazil for Mercedes just felt so unbelievably hopeful that this could be it. This could be a good weekend, a Lewis Hamilton home race. And we're going to just like go out strong. That didn't happen. So the complete story for Alpine is you are a works team. Can you start acting like it? That whole chunk right in the middle of like, way in the back. It's just, yeah, what is happening here? Oh, I mean, they fired everybody and like, what's going on inside? I don't know. Bring in Ryan Reynolds. Tell him to like, you know, order some people around and figure it out. But it's it's terrifying. It's worse than expected. We talked about in our teammate battles about, you know, everyone was anticipating a lot of the dumpster fire at Alpine to be with Esteban and Pierre. And you know what? I think just all of the energy in that garage was sucked up behind the scenes that like, we got to be on our best behavior as much as we can, because you know, it's just a mess everywhere else. I'm a firm believer in modern F1 that you can only win a championship. If you are a works team, like if you are not developing your own engine, like you have a certain ceiling and we only have so many works teams and Alpine being one of them and their inability to act like it is will forever frustrate me. I want them to be good. And I like, I just, ah, like they don't, maybe, maybe not like Mercedes, Ferrari, Red Bull good up there, but like close. I just, ah, it's such a mess. It's a mess. I'm sorry, Alpine fans. I don't have positive vibes for you. Haven't proven it yet. Haven't proven it. Yeah, it's still, we don't know team principal. So many things still up in the air there that it just bad vibes all around. Oh my gosh, you're right. We don't even know who's going to be their team principal next year. Yeah, Otmar still, Otmar Bye Bye was this year. I mean, we had the whole like murmurings around the past. We have a that, temporary you know, route. Yeah. And like Mattia maybe coming, whatever, all of that coming in still, but it's been very quiet. It's going to be my, one of my most anticipated pieces of news for 2024 is just the administration as a whole at Alpine. I can't believe that they haven't announced their permanent team principal. I completely forgot about that. Mm -hmm. I can't believe I forgot about that. I'm, oh my gosh. I'm so sorry, Alpine fans. A works team has to win. To your point of a works team is most likely to be able to win the constructors. And they just hear you say that. And they're like, hold my beer. Hold my non-alcoholic Heineken. And like, (laughs) here we go. Like, oh my God. You know, when we say that we believe that there are stories up and down the entire Formula One grid, we really mean it. So now we're going to take a quick on look at the back. (laughs) 
Yeah, there are four teams we haven't wrapped up yet, and that's because I'm going to make the argument for which of the four teams between Williams, Alfatari, Alfa Romeo, and Haas was the slowest car overall. For starters, for these four teams, I polled how many times was their qualifying pace in the top five on the grid. Williams was in the top five three times, Alfatari three times, Haas three times, Alfa Romeo only one time. And that one time was Miami, by the way, just as a, a sidebar. They were only in the top five once. That don't make sense. And a reminder to this, there's 22 races that were raced this season. So three times is also not very impressive for the other teams. Yeah. that They were a top five fastest car. Three times is bad and one time was worse. <laughs> so then I looked at the opposites. How many times were they the slowest car on the grid? Alphatari was only the slowest car on the grid three times across the season. So despite not having a lot of peaks in their performance, they also didn't have a lot of like, you are the dumpster of this race. Haas was also only P10 in qualifying three times. Alfa Romeo was the slowest team five times and Williams was the slowest team six times over the course of the season. That feels right. That feels right with the Nick DeVries and Logan Sargent of it all. You know? Well, yeah, but it's it's actually would be Alex Albon. Oh, jeez. So I took the yeah. fastest time. Right. So, like, I took every team's fastest time. So even Alex's fastest time was the slowest fastest time. Yep, still makes sense in terms I, I of hope that what they were mouthful. dealing with. Yeah. Yes, no, that does make sense. But yeah. my brain just automatically looks at going into the back and I and my I categorize my drivers. Yes. But yes, looking at even with the fastest. Well, you know, it's what he's working with. And Alphatari was such a flip-flop back and forth. And yeah, Alpha Romeo, just ouch. Just super ouch. There were so many times this season that Yuki was on the fringe of points where you could tell that that wasn't necessarily the slowest car on the grid, but they just couldn't get points for, for whatever reason, or their qualifying wasn't just good enough. Uh, so then I looked at how many times did any of these four teams out-qualify the Alpine, the slowest of our works teams. So Alphatari and Haas, both outpaced Alpine five times this season. Williams outpaced Alpine three times this season. But unfortunately for Alfa Romeo, they were never able to be faster than an Alpine. Which really was the difference between points and no points this season. I'm really trying to figure out, like, who is the biggest, like, dig at here? Is it Alpine or is it Alfa Romeo? And I kind of think it's... Yeah, yeah, but... (laughs) Alpine do better. Oh, man. (laughs) All right. Well, to wrap this up, I'm going to run through this really fast. And then, Nicole, you'll tell me if you agree with my assessment. Williams had the highest highs. And they were just able to capitalize on what seems to be fewer opportunities, but they really maximized those fewer opportunities. Haas had no race pace, so none of this really matters. 
Turmoil at AlphaTauri meant that even though they had more opportunities to maximize on good pace, they didn't do that often, whether it was because Daniel Ricardo broke his wrists and Liam Lawson was in the car or just general chaos of their team principal retiring, Nick DeVries getting pushed out of his seat. So much happened. They didn't maximize their weekends. But the Alfa Romeo is my vote for the worst car of the year. Despite it not always being the worst car every weekend, it averaged out to never being better than the Alpine. It was the second most, P10 the second most amount of times, and their pace was only in the top five of the 10 cars one time over the course of the season. So that is why Alfa Romeo, to me, gets the crown for the worst car of the 2023 Formula One season. Yeah, I think firmly agree to the point of Williams highs and high and lows were low. And, but I feel there's a glimmer of hope there moving forward for them. You know, things can work. I'd rather like a little bit of a roller coaster with highs and lows than just kind of like in the trenches. Haas, I've always had the struggle of people getting amped about them on Saturday because, you know, Kevin Magnuson is P1 in a sprint and or Nico Hulkenberg just is for some reason always there in qualifying and everyone gets really excited of, you know, being a Mr. Saturday type thing. But they can't follow through on Sundays and that, I think. So it's always, I knew it was going to come down to the alphas. With... <laughs> With the amount of inconsistencies that happened with Alphatari across just everywhere, I mean, you listed everything that went on, the few glimmers of incredibleness that were able to occur on track are even more impressive in that way, especially with everything that, like, Liam was able to do with the car. That was me being like, yay, Danny Ricardo!" Like, got to admit what Liam can do. So I do kind of agree just based on the... Alpha Romeo had what should have been, like, the, mo the most consistent workspace in terms of like in their garage inter like everything should have been like such an ebbs and flows where like it doesn't seem like so many things should be influencing from the off track like the alpha Al alvatari was dealing with so alpha romeo just flopped continuous flop time and time again when it they just never figured it out nothing ever worked and yeah it was it's painful to watch and there's just a lot of things that i feel like they were just like shrugging at or but it, it, it was biggest disappointment, I think, of the season. I agree. I don't have any feelings anymore. Yes, I don't have any feelings anymore. I don't have any feelings anymore. I lost them, like, earlier on in the year. What surprised you most about 2023? I don't know. I don't have any feelings anymore. You know what didn't surprise me the most about 2024? Is this. I don't even like podcasts. They make me fall asleep. Max Verstappen not getting the joke. Like, felt really spot on for 2023. Yep. But the Max Verstappen podcast still continued, even if he didn't get it. They make me fall asleep. <laughs> All right, Nicole, what surprised you the most about team performance in 2023? Okay, so this was something I'm, I never like to eat my words. No one ever likes to say like, ah, oh, they were wrong, but I'm going to be a big girl and I'm going to do it. The start of the season, I felt like in one of our episodes, I uh, we were talking about our hot takes for the season and as it was going on, and I did not believe that McLaren was going to pull through. 
I didn't. I thought that it was a bunch of PR mumbo jumbo and that they were just kind of throwing quotes around about, you know, trying to appease their fans and stakeholders, really. But they surprised me and they figured out their upgrades. And, you know, I think they ended up falling back more than we all eventually thought they would have. But they were there. They were a big part of the conversation. I would say over the summer, they were basically the narrative. And uh, they proved me wrong. They figured some stuff out. So I'll be intrigued to see if they can continue it next year. But I definitely at the start of this season would not have anticipated McLaren being as part of the conversation and discussion. I don't want to say competition because, you know, Red Bull, but uh, <laughs> just the narrative that they were. Well, you don't have to take the complete fall for that because I think we were both ringing the alarm bells of, yeah, we've heard this before. Like you literally announcing your car and telling everyone that it's not going to be good is not normally a good sign for a season. And both of us post car launch were like, hmm, yep, don't need to see it to believe it. Uh, so they, that was definitely a shocker. And I think they could have improved, but didn't the jump they took was shocking. Like, it's not that there was a jump, but it was, you know, <laughs> everything that was the British Wicked. GP was shocking. <laughs> yeah. What surprised me the most in 2023, I originally started with Aston Martin. And then I kind of was like, I think Aston Martin as a season as a whole kind of was expected. Despite their highs being so high. And I landed on, I think Ferrari is what surprised me the most about 2023. Despite the fact that they weren't fighting for a championship, I felt like their operations, their decision-making, their pit stops was so much cleaner and smoother than anything we saw last year. I was very skeptical early on that Fred Vassar was going to be able to come in and make any kind of immediate change that we all felt. And I felt over the course of the season, you could feel the effect of some of the operational changes they were making. I'm not trying to say that any of it was perfect and they don't have room to grow, but the amount of clown memes I saw this season was greatly reduced. Overall, their pit stops were so, so much better. Like we all moved on to making fun of the fact that Mercedes can't do good consistent pit stops instead of Ferrari because they were that clean and consistent. And yes, they definitely seem like they have some communication with their drivers things to clean up still, but all in all, it felt like their decision-making was consistent and quick and you could feel the effect that Fred Visser had so much more than I said. I said we would need to wait well over a year and I could feel it this year. Slowly but surely, it could happen. Yeah, those quotes, I remember laughing at Fred's quotes of just, you need communication, you just need people to talk to each other. And it's like, that's it? That's what you really think? And in some areas, maybe yes, maybe people really weren't communicating to each other in the garage. It's, Fred, I think, is definitely, I, I do feel the right person for the role. I just want to see a little bit more consistency with it, and there's still things to figure out. But there was clearly a lot of issues going on. I mean, that's why Mattia left. So had a, has, has some work to do. Yeah. 
with Ferrari, it's always going to be like, is he given the space and power to make the changes that need to be made? And at least for year one, Fred Vasseur was my team principal of the year, probably, because it felt like no matter how low the lows got, uh, the vibes weren't bad. Like it felt like the Ferrari vibes didn't turn into spiraling chaos as much as they very much easily could have this year. Like, yes, did both drivers get sad at different points in the season? A hundred percent. Was the Italian media still the Italian media? Of course. Were Ferrari fans fighting online constantly? Yeah, but all of those things are out of Fred's control. And I felt like the things he could control, he really kept a lid on all of it. It felt like both of his drivers really respected his way of handling things. And it just, keeping the vibes up in Ferrari seems difficult. And I was impressed. Yes. Even still, you know, none of his quotes were ever as like, it seemed like end of the world, like Toto's were necessarily sometimes and but also toto says what my brain was thinking so i'm not saying that he shouldn't be saying those things but fred never <laughs> let that lapse he always seemed like the excited supportive f- family member that's like we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna figure it out we're gonna do it and yeah it, he's and he never made any promises that they couldn't keep mm-hmm. like he they would be like how like they would interview him, like, how's Ferrari going to do this weekend? And if he didn't want to say something negative, he would just say, we'll see. And like, is that a boring quote? Yes. Is that in crucial to being a good leader and keeping the vibes high? Yes. It's honest. I appreciate the honesty, Fred. Just continue it and keep doing what you're doing. So we've talked about best. what was our surprise of the 2023 season. Now, leaving 2023, headed into 2024 where we're feeling the best vibes are and when we say best vibes we're not talking about like oh i was gonna win like okay red bull duh dominance is there it's happening doesn't necessarily seem like it's going anywhere so where are you falling in teams with the best vibes at the moment that you're you would say hopeful for next year that you seems like yeah it would make sense if they come out really blazing first race Not answering the question you just asked, I realized that someone needs to count how many times we both have said vibes in this entire recording, this entire episode. We're just like, if we have have no other way of saying things are going well, then like vibes are good. Um, So take a sip every time. Um, (laughs) Like one of us. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, Okay. Now actually answering the question you said. So I think the team that has been able to generate the most positive vibes going into 2024 is McLaren. So, and I actually don't think any of it has to do with the on-track performance. Like the PR wheel that Zach Brown and his PR and marketing team has been able to spin of this entire season has been a masterclass in public relations and marketing. So much so that I had no idea they dipped at the end of the season. Like I, my brain, I was like, they're the second fastest car for sure. And so much of that has to do like with what their PR team has been able to build out and make us feel going into 2024. Um, like vibes are an intangible measurement 
right? It's genuinely how good are we feeling about a team? And I am so impressed with how good McLaren has made everyone feel about their season and their hopes for next year. And so much so that me, Miss, no one, if you are not a works team, you cannot win. I'm still feeling good about McLaren for next year. Now, again, I don't think anyone can compete with Red Bull next year, but I'm feeling good about them. And I just, I think it's worth of all the teams going to 2024 with the best vibes, like hats off to McLaren for that marketing PR masterclass you've put on this season, like round of applause. Yeah, I think uh, almost everyone can agree. Vibes at, uh, at McLaren right now are immaculately high. It's no surprise they are, you know, consistently marketing masters and able to spin their stories. They have two drivers that are incredibly charismatic and they have an administrative team that also knows the importance of marketing and the statements that are released. And it's almost, you could say that they met expectations. We were just talking about how Fred for Ferrari doesn't necessarily make promises when asked questions about things. And the point of Zach Brown saying that they, you know, certain upgrades are coming and they don't feel too hopeful right now. And then they prove that. So it's, Gives you hope for the, for the following year, and they definitely turned a good story out of it. So that's definitely, definitely you can say that. Now, going into my teams of best vibes, and it may manifest. It may seem a little crazy, but it actually isn't so crazy because we just looked at all of this data. I'm going with Mercedes. I feel good about Mercedes going into next year. I kind of feel similarly, this sounds weird, but similarly to where I was last year, that everyone feels like something needs to change. Toto's quotes are fed up. Lewis's quotes are fed up. George, I think, is a little bit more frustrated this year than he was last year, where people want things to work differently and they need to happen. So I feel like we're going to be going into next season willing to try different things. I have not lost all hope. I still continue to just see this fire grow within Lewis and Lewis's and Toto's quotes continuously talking about wanting to give Lewis that, you know, ninth championship that he deserves. And I believe it can happen. I do. The only piece I really that like can grind down my hope Mercedes pit stops. So just, you know, off season, let's get some practice going. Really. You can do it. If Brianna and I can, you know, go practice some pit stops, you can too. Um, so I'm going with Mercedes, especially given where they finished. I mean, numbers don't lie for a reason. And we look at data and seeing where Mercedes finished gives me hope moving forward. I am unrealistically positive about Mercedes next season for all the reasons you outlined. And who knows if it will manifest, but I think your assessment was really spot on that it feels like everyone now understands and have already taken steps to make things different for next year. Because this time last year, they still had it moved away from the zero pod. They got overly confident with the Brazil win. They weren't listening to Lewis Hamilton and no one was this angry yet, right? Like I think they were all a little overconfident and they've now since said that the targets they set for themselves going into this year were not extreme enough. They didn't set high enough pace targets for the car. And that's why we saw what we saw. Uh, we know that the car coming next year is going to be completely different. Every single piece is going to be different. There's a new technical director in place, which is already going to just change things from that perspective. 
And then I agree that like all the angry quotes coming from Toto and Lewis and like, there's a very different Lewis Hamilton right now. Like Lewis Hamilton in 2022 was in a crap car recovering from the sport, cheating him out of something. This year was Lewis uh, regaining his force of nature and just being fed up, but fed up, not in a defeated way, fed up in a get me a good car now kind of way. And that's a different sense of motivation um, than I think we saw at this time last year. So there's enough change happening at Mercedes that if that car just gets a little better, like we saw they were the fourth fastest car all season and managed to get P2. Like imagine if they had the third fastest car they might actually be competitive. Like that car doesn't need to be that much better for drivers like Lewis and George to be competitive on track with it. So it's just, I think the vibes are really good. I'm feeling great about it. And I live in that Delulu land until I see that car on track next season. So no one in the comments burst my bubble. I agree. No bubble bursting. Good vibes only. Thank you so much to our voiceover man, to Lewis Hamilton for liking our Instagram post. We're never going to get over this and we'll like be yelling about it for months and months and years to come. And thank you to our four-legged executive producers. Again, this is one of our three season reviews of the F1 2023 season. So once you finish listening to this one, make sure you go catch the other two if you haven't listened to them already. If you are watching on YouTube, sound off in the comments your favorite moment from the F1 2023 season. What things surprised you what things did you completely expect and what do you hype for in 2024 anything like that we're really really curious of what you're thinking and where your vibes are at the end of this season so subscribe like the video interact in whatever way you can audio listeners don't forget to follow turn on auto downloads rate and review the pod all of these things make us incredibly happy and really help other wonderful people just like yourself find our podcast you can join us for daily gridwalks on all social media platforms. You can follow us at Gridwalk Show on Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, and Threads. We are doing 23 podiums to wrap up the F1 2023 season. So if you haven't got enough F1 2023 season wrap-up content from us, check out our socials for all of our podiums that you have you can check out and see of our favorite things of the entire year. And we will be back to walk the Formula One grid every Thursday, including in the off-season. And we sincerely hope you join us. But this is all feeling like a big grid wrap-up and not a grid walk.